Welcome to the Uncommon History Podcast, your go-to source for fascinating stories from the past. On our podcast, we explore more obscure and often overlooked corners of history. From lesser-known tales to weird facts about history, our mission is to share the stories that will leave you surprised and entertained. Join us as we discover a world of history you didn't know existed. Welcome to Uncommon History, the podcast that explores the fascinating and lesser-known stories of our history. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, we are deep into season four. Yes. And last week we had a, a great interview with uh, Chad and Joni. Yes. About the Perival Battlefield and the ledger that uh, has been recovered from Dr. Mm-hmm. Swift. And this week is going to kind of tie into last week's podcast. Yes. Mm-hmm. Why not you sure go is. ahead and... Tell us what. Well, let me ask our listeners, uh, get you in a right train of thought here, and also myself. <laughs> uh, what is the value, do you think, of a first person? In other words, witnesses to things that happen. Uh, you've been in crime investigation in your background, and when you had to investigate a crime, Brian, how important was it to talk to somebody that was there? It was very important, but not just to one person but multiple people because, you know, here's the thing when you interview somebody. Somebody may give you one description, you go across the street and talk to somebody other else, and it may be a little different because they're seeing it from a different angle. They may have not seen the full vision of what occurred like the other person. Right. So what you do is, as an investigator, you take everybody you talk to to put the story together because each one of them seen it from a different point of view. Does, right. does that make sense? It's totally. So yes. that's how you get to the truth of what really happened. Uh-huh. And, and I think by what we're going to do tonight by you talking the firsthand experiences and the accounts of the people that were actually there during the Battle of Perivale, right, helps put a bigger a bigger picture together of the what really took place. I think it puts a face on it. Mm-hmm. It keeps it from being just a history book. Well, the Union lined up here. The Confederate lined up here. They shot here. This many died. This many were wounded. This actually makes it a – you go deeper into the story and what it was like that day in, in October when they when the battle happened. Well, it, it, it exactly. And you know better than I do because you've had to investigate, and I've only investigated from uh, over time in history, and you've investigated live events. So um, that is a very good insight into – what investigation is about. Now, I've often said that historians are seekers of the truth. Right. And that might be true for everybody, but it's true for me because I always wanted to know what happened really, really. You follow me? I mean, I put the, you know. And then everyday people are caught up in in events that that pertaining to this story that that it it changed their life forever. It changed their view of life forever. it 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 for the soldier who was there. It took away not only their uh, some of them's life. It took away their health. Uh, it damaged them emotionally for years. Uh, it also damaged them. We don't think about a whole lot about it financially damaging them. Well, it also affected the people there in Paraville that lived there that weren't right. in the battle. Right, and it also uh, 
they would some of these guys would leave a part of themselves on the field or their whole self on that field. Right. So when it, when we're looking at these eyewitness accounts now, what we've done, what I've tried to do tonight is this isn't just about this is only part one of a two part story. We're not actually going to get into the battle tonight, but we're going to talk about the soldiers coming into town, what the people saw, what the people that were there said about what they saw. And uh, this is the type of thing that I find very interesting. It's the uncommon history. It's the stuff you don't focus on if you... That's basically what our podcast that's, that's is about, exactly and this what, fits perfect with it. I mean, it stays. It's exactly what motivated me to do it is because when I started reading this now, I am going to, folks, have to do a lot of reading tonight, and I hope you all will bear with me. Usually I don't read much. I usually just have an outline that I glance at, and I tell these stories. But tonight this is in such detail that I just couldn't memorize all that. But a lot of this information that I'm going to give you comes from a book compiled and edited by David R. Logsdon. It's L-O-G-S-D-O-N, and it's called Eyewitnesses at the Battle of Perivale. And on the front page of his book, it says six in a series. So I know he's done uh, other battles, but this is one of my favorite books because it's firsthand accounts. Now, there's some other accounts in here that may come from other sources, but primarily I will use his book as the most of this podcast. Now, we're talking about Perryville, Kentucky, October the 7th, 1862. This is one day before the battle. And we're going to talk about it from a civilian's point of view, and I wanted to talk about it from a lady by the name of Mrs. Berkshire, and she lived on a farm between Perryville and Springfield on the Perryville-Springfield Road. Now, this was one of the main roads that the Union Army came in on uh, and Confederates. So she's... Real quick, where, did the, where was the Union Army coming from? Okay, the Union Army was coming from the direction of Louisville, which would have been to the north. Would have been Frankfurt. West. Would they come through Louisville to Frankfurt? Well, been, there was a group that uh, had come near Frankfurt the night before the battle because the Confederates had came into the state and tried to install a Confederate governor. Well, actually, they did. Okay, His yeah. name was Richard Hawes. And then when the cannonading started around Frankfurt, they just skedaddled <laughs> and then deserted Frankfurt. And Bragg's Union, oh, excuse me, Bragg's Confederate Army was near Harrodsburg, and they started moving towards Perryville. And Harrodsburg's about six miles, seven miles north yes, of Perryville. Yes, uh, about six or seven miles north of Perryville. So you're right in the heart of central Kentucky. So and the Union were coming in from the west. Yes. Uh -huh. To compound the problems for the armies that day, uh, it was extremely dry. And all the podcasts and, and uh, that we've done about Perryville, we've always talked about that as being a big factor. And well, it, was the battle over water? I mean, I've always heard people talk about, well, they, they, the reason Perryville happened was because they were out of water and there was a drought. Well, it, it, it wasn't. Uh, I think that would be over simplifying, simplifying yeah. it because there was grander plans than just to get water. It was for the control of Kentucky. Okay. So, but, but you were right in the sense that General Bragg knew, and he had sent out uh, scouts and everything. They knew if they could get to Perryville and get the water to their back, there was water in Perryville. Um, in October, it's uh, having lived there all my life, it's usually a really dry time. Yeah. And so uh, it's not unusual for the streams to dry up. Most of the streams there are shallow, pretty shallow. They're runoff-type yeah. streams, so they dry up quickly. But some of the good springs and stuff that were there, 
um, they had wanted to put that water to their back and, and replenish their canteens and, their, and, you know, we forget about the horses and all the animals and so forth. So there was more to it than just watering men. And that takes a huge amount of water for, oh, for 30,000 men. Yeah. Well, a uh, Miss Berkshire, uh, as I mentioned before, on this road between Perryville and Springfield, uh, she looked up and she said that the, the morning had dawned beautiful and bright with a, with a, under a cloudless sky. And I'm reading now, hurrying to the highway, and she called it a highway, by the way, which has kind of surprised me. Uh, we beheld a sea of blue. Federal soldiers under the command of General Buell were passing. A great specter of infantry greeted our view, then cavalry, then commissary wagons, then artillery. And awed by the almost speechless, we watched what seemed to be a never-ending parade. But the sight that was exciting and thrilling as the fifes and the drums were playing, officers galloping up and down the lines, giving orders to their men. Flags flying, buttons, buckles, and epaulets and bayonets all glittering in the bright sunshine. I could see that. I mean, I could vision from what she wrote. What's, I mean, she noticed the buttons and yeah, the buckles. Such and the, detail. Yeah, yeah. Orders were given to halt, and the soldiers had the opportunity to feel their great suffering for water. Uh, canteens were filled for as many as we could serve. Sister and I took what we could manage and hurriedly filled them with our wonderfully, uh, our wonderful spring. Now I want to shift uh, focus well, a little. Well, let me let me okay. ask you one. Tell me what Perival was like then. How many people? A village it? of eight hundred people, uh, probably, probably maybe sixty or eighty houses uh, in the village itself many small farms out all around uh, the average farm was probably two or three hundred acres uh, some were bigger some maybe smaller did they lean to the north or the south good question brian because one of the things i want us to notice is how the soldiers talked about how they were greeted when they came into town so it's hard to get a read on that because i really can't tell you uh, i know this dr polk i'm getting ready to talk about he was a strong union man but then again, there's Confederate accounts that said the ladies welcomed him into town. So wow. uh, I don't know. So, but, I mean, Perival's a friendly town anyway. It could be that you they, you know, when it's or maybe they need whoever was coming. They acted like they were yeah. on their side, whether they were or not. <laughs> right. I don't know. It's kind of like in the Outlaw Josie Wells, the the scene where what color uniform they're wearing right. when they come. That's what it's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this Doctor J J Polk, who was a Perival physician doctor. Uh, trained at Transylvania and Lexington, one of the better physicians of the area, and set up practice in Perryville, and he was there during the war. And he said the Confederates uh, had possession of two fine springs. Now, one we know was behind the what's known as the Crawford House, which was General Bragg's headquarters, but I don't know what other one he's talking about unless he's talking about the cave in town that had water running out of it. Uh, said the only good fountain of water in the neighborhood, so there weren't too many places they could get water, as we had been in a drought for many days. So the, so the Chaplin River would have been dry. Chaplin River had some puddles, but they was pretty much dry. Now, one of the more humorous accounts, Brian, is from uh, fellow Brigadier General John R. Little, and he gave his account of uh, interaction between General William Hardy and uh, a lady by the name of Widow Padlock. <laughs> and I'd like to read that to right. you. He said, after examining different positions, he's talking about General Hardy, 
between Springfield and Perilville Road. And this is, he's talking about before the battle, he's looking to gain advantage of A using the terrain. Advantage, right. Exactly. So he returned to Perilville and rode to a house on an elevation in a commanding position for a battery to the south of the place, which he found was owned by a widow Padlock, P-A-D-L-O-C-K, having with her family a large number of females. The gallant general was quite at home, brandishing compliments, particularly with the widow, who expressed her sincere sympathy for the general. <laughs> the one who had so advanced in years should be engaged in the dangers and troubles of war. <laughs> Why, madam, he explained, exclaimed, I am only 47 years old. <laughs> Horrified and touched to the quick, he was very embarrassed. <laughs> now, how old do you think me to be? She said, well, sir, I'm 72, and I think you're probably a year younger. <laughs> he said, how, what? Why, madam, I am not as old as man pointing to me, and that would be General Little. I bet you could see the air coming out around oh, his bootlegs. He, he was on a mission to prove his age. <laughs> but the lady shook her head in disbelief, and General was not quite concerned, fell seriously to work to try to convince her of her error. <laughs> and in the eagerness of his arguments, appealed to me for confirmation. And I was busily engaged in making out sketches of the locales, uh, uh, localities of the area for the expected battleground. And after getting through, she, she clearly said was making no progress <laughs> in convincing the lady and therefore proposed to beat a retreat, insisting that we could not afford to waste any more time upon this subject now. So he lost a battle before the he, real battle exactly. ever began. <laughs> But I could freely say in, in, in his point, we were nearly the same age. But the lady shook her head and never was satisfied. She did not believe it. <laughs> now, we're going to go back to the Berkshire Farm, which is along the Springfield Road. And here's another little humorous event that happened. All right. An old, bent, uh, much wrinkled colored woman had come from a big house on a hill to find out what was going on. Uh, the excitement was too much for her as a fringe as she could jump up and down and shout, hurrah for the Union. Now, these were all the Union soldiers coming down the road. Right. And uh, they told her that they would introduce her to President Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> he took her to one of the big wagons and told her that the driver was the president. And she <laughs> reached out her hand and shook it heartily and responded to in another burst of enthusiasm crying. God bless you, Massa Lincoln. She was told that if she was a Union woman, to take that red ribbon from her hair cap and put on a blue one, in which immediately she did. <laughs> so they had a little fun at her expense, I guess. Yeah. This part of the podcast is sponsored by Understanding the Bible Made Easy. Are you looking to better understand the Bible? Then look no further than Understanding the Bible Made Easy. This book is a perfect companion for anyone looking to explore the Bible in a comprehensive and easy-to-understand way. With clear explanations, helpful tips, this book will help you gain a deeper understanding of the Bible so you can start applying its teachings to your life right away. Get your copy of Understanding the Bible Made Easy from Amazon or check out the link at the top of our show notes. Okay, the next thing was is how dry and how desolate the country was. Now, here's a, here's a 
factor in the battle, Brian, that most people don't think about. I didn't think about it, but it's dust. Mm-hmm. Something as minor as dust. U.S. Major Montgomery Wright of Buell's Army uh, said that the country through which he had marched was almost destitute of water. Mm. U.S. Uh, soldier Armand Hupp of the 5th Indiana Battery said it was hard matter to find water in this vicinity. And what our coffee was made of was water which had been had a green scum over the top of hole about inch thick. But there was only, that was the only water we could find, so we managed to boil away the scum before putting coffee into it. Wow. And it would, in this way, be very uh, more palatable. Man. A U.S. doctor, Tilford, of the 79th Indiana, a doctor, Tilford, marched quite uh, fast all day, said our army suffered terribly for water. It is almost impossible to get any. Our fellows take water out of mud holes and drink it as if it was the best thing that they'd ever tasted. Now, the dust, uh, U.S. Robert M. Rogers of the 125th Illinois talked about the dust. He said the day was terrible, and about the middle of the afternoon, a division of cavalry came riding by, pressing to the front. They rode in columns of twos, and it seemed like that they would never get by. He said the dust raised by their horses was so fearful that we were not in the best of humor. So that as they rode by, curses <laughs> followed that flew at their heads. <laughs> Some of the boys actually pricked the horses with their bayonets. But at length they passed us, and glad enough we were to get rid of them. Yep. So the dust, they, they probably was a cloud of dust. And, you know, one of the things that scouts did is when they went out, they look for dust. They look for clouds of dust because if you've got 150 horses galloping down a dry, dusty road, you're going to see clouds of dust, and that's one of the ways they could spot and keep up with cavalry especially. Yeah. Infantry didn't stir up as much dust as the cavalry. All right, and then we're going to move on to a Confederate by the name of Whit Davis of the 4th Tennessee Cavalry. On the afternoon of October 7th, Captain J.K. Lester, commanding Company B of the 4th Tennessee Battalion under Major J.R. Davis, was with uh, his company into which I belonged. I was sent from our extreme right to find General Buell's exact position. We met a company of, of our, about half our number, all dressed in Confederate uniforms, wearing sabers and regulation brass Yankee spurs. Our respective captains saluted each other while their horses' necks were uh, lapped. In other words, the horses were touching. They were that close together. The captain of the new uniform asked our chief, what command do you belong? And he received his reply to Wheeler's command, Wharton's brigade. Our captain then asked him, said, what command do you belong? To which an evasive answer was given. And during this exchange, the men of respective companies advanced to the right and left of their respective commanders. Their horses' noses were nearly touching. Their sabers and spurs gave the the game away. As quick as our captain yelled out, boys, they're damned Yankees, turn loose your (laughs) six-shooters. We emptied a volley into them, killing and wounding more than half of their number. As the sham captain wheeled his horse to escape, Captain Lester shot him in the back. 
but it did not knock him out of the saddle. The whole troop quickly followed him and with us in hot pursuit. We got eight or ten more of them before running into a hornet's nest on the, of the main line of Buell's left wing. So we received a baptism of fire and beat a hasty retreat. Mm. Well, that's a case of two groups coming together, misidentifying each other. Just by accident. Uh, that's crazy. Now, here's some accounts of the soldiers that came into Parable that were marching. Well, how many soldiers came into Parable on both sides? Well, it, uh, it, you know, 60,000 would probably eventually come through the town. Now, they didn't all engage that right. day. But um, if you take about 30,000 of Confederate, about 32,000 Union soldiers, you know, um, some of them didn't get into the fight till late. Um, wow. But it's it's a huge amount of people. That's the biggest For a population that Parable's ever seen even to oh, this no. day. Yeah, nothing ever. Um, a Confederate, Thomas R. Hoper of the 5th Tennessee, we remained in camps in Harrisburg until about dusk, but previous to leaving, that we cooked about two days' rations. We got orders to leave our knapsacks, and we then thought a fight was close at hand. Mm. But usually they didn't leave their knapsacks. A Confederate, George uh, Jones of Stanford's Mississippi Battery, uh, marched 10 miles to Perryville. Now, here's an account if you ask about who. He said, the ladies are crowding the streets with Confederate aprons and flags. Hurrah for the ladies of Kentucky. So wow. see, his account was that he was welcomed by Confederate ladies. Uh, Confederate William E. Bevins of the 1st Arkansas, his account says, we camped in the main street of the town. Some of the boys stole a beehive, and many of them got stung on their faces, and the swelling closed their eyes. Dr. Arnold was one of them, one of the injured ones, but he did not fail to eat his honey. <laughs> I teased him, saying General Hardy would need no further proof that he carried out his, his guilt on his face. The doctor did not uh, relish that, so I turned over to go to sleep when a bee stung me on the cheek. <laughs> Who's... Uh, who's guilty now laughed the doctor and the joke surely was on me but i knew where the medicine wagon was and i went and got some ammonia and washed my face and the swelling went down at once have you ever heard of that no i haven't i didn't surprise they had ammonia let me ask you this how did the people react in parable you know pending the battle were i know we said you know some of them were greeted but when the battle took place did they flee did or did they stay and watch? What what did they do? You're getting ready to find out. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm you don't you see uh, our listeners. He does not know what's coming, so okay. we don't rehearse this. But I'm getting ready to do that. Okay, okay? Uh, Sam Watkins of the First Tennessee. By the way, Sam Watkins. That's a name familiar to a lot of people that that study uh, Civil War history. He seemed to be everywhere. Really, he wrote a book and private uh, privations of Sam Watkins. I think is the name of it. But he was everywhere. He was in battles all over the place. And wow. he survived the war. That's and it's amazing. Amazing, amazing. He said, I stood in picket in Perryville. He was with the first Tennessee, if I didn't say that, I'm sorry. Uh, I stood picket in Perryville the night before the battle. During the night, I and another man made a raid on a citizen's pantry where we captured a bucket of honey and a pitcher of sweet milk. <laughs> 
This portion of the podcast is sponsored by the Christian Devotional and Prayer Journal for Women. Are you looking for a guided Christian devotional and undated journal to help you deepen your faith and prayer life? Well, look no further. The Women's Bible Study and Devotional is designed to help you explore the Bible in a meaningful way and to develop the habit of regular devotion and prayer. The guide provides scripture-based lessons and activities that will help you draw closer to God and gain an understanding of the Bible's teachings. You can get your copy from Amazon, or you can see the link at the top of our show notes. And three or four biscuits. The old citizens were not at home. He and his whole household had gone visiting. I believe in the fact that I think all the citizens of Parable were taken with a sudden notice of promiscuous visiting about this time. <laughs> okay. At least they were not at home to callers. Okay. <laughs> so if you all know where they were, they left. They went visiting. Uh, Confederate Luke Finley of the 4th Tennessee said, Reaching Parable about midnight, we lay on our uh, in the open fields on our arms. And I mean, what he means by arms is on our guns. He laid ready for battle. Wow. So that, that group didn't even get to probably rest hardly at all. Uh, Confederate Sergeant William A. Brown, Stanford, Mississippi Battery, said, I was ordered back into the town to find out where the headquarters were. The houses were dark and silent as a churchyard. As I rode through the streets, there was not even a dog to bark at me. It was a, a striking picture of a deserted village. Wow. All of the townspeople had left to get clear of the spectacle of battle. Ex- expected battle, excuse me. Right. And it said the hush of battle was all around as the men talked in low tones. For some reason, they felt this impending battle, that something major was going to happen. Yeah. And U.S. George uh, Kirkpatrick of the 42nd Indiana said, we expected a fight and had and heard that the Johnnies would likely take all of our grub away from us So, if they captured us. So I ate, <laughs> don't you listen to this, I ate two pounds of pickled pork raw <laughs> and chewed up the coffee, which I had fear of being taken from me. Wow. And a little later that morning, water was very scarce, and the salt meat took effect <laughs> with a vengeance. <laughs> with this and dry weather, we were severely uh, in distress. Well, let me ask you something before you go to the next one. How did, like, Mitchellsburg, Parksville, Brumfield, the little communities around Parable, did they – was there any interaction in those communities, or was it just kind of all there in parable? Well, the only thing that I know of, uh, of course, we think of the battle just being on that field, and a lot of people that come to the park just think of it being there, but it was actually much broader. There was actually cavalry skirmishing things spread out all over that area toward Mitchellsburg, which would be to the south of Perryville, a few miles, right. and in that direction, um, there was – there was little skirmishes there. There was um, uh, in, uh, Union forces were coming in from different directions. They didn't come all in the same direction. They'd right. come in from different routes, depending on where water was. There was one uh, corps that went over to the Forkland community, which is about 10 miles from Perryville to the southwest or southeast, rather. Uh, they got water there out of the North Orleans Fork River for their horses. So there was there was a spreading out of these men more than you would think. Yeah. But the main body was focused in parable, yes. Okay. 
Um, now, we're going to talk a little bit about the battles that it starts, but we're not going to get into the battle itself too much in this podcast. But we're just setting the stage for the next one, which we're going to give some accounts of what the men witnessed there. Um, now, this is the morning of October the 8th. Uh, Confederate Captain John Taylor, the 27th Tennessee, he said, early in the morning, I accompanied Lieutenant Albert Andrews of my company to the creek where we were washed our hands and faces. He spoke of being killed and what he wanted me to do in, in that uh, contingency. I endeavored to shake this premonition from him, but to no effect. So these men um, had emotions. Uh, they were fearful of what was going to happen. Right. And they prepared for what could happen. Uh, Carol H. Clark of the 16th Tennessee said, I took considerable time to gather the Army uh, in, in the described uh, position. We were formed in a line and awaited the order to march forward. The enemy was about one half mile from us, and the crack of pickets' rifles and occasional roar of a cannon can be heard, and that makes me feel very sad. Mm. I wonder how many of these men survived. I may go back and see if any of these men were, that we're talking about survived or were killed during the battle. Right. Ernest Withers of the 50th Ohio U.S. said, Presently, we came in sight of a signal corps busy at work sending their messages to different parts of the field, batteries of cannons uh, hurrying about us, hurrying past us. One of the things that people don't realize today because of our modern communications, back then the only way to send messages other than telegraph, which was not practical on a battlefield, was by flags. Mm-hmm. And they called it the Signal Corps. And they were men trained with a battery of flags. And they would scatter out on the highest hills and they would signal uh, of what orders and, and right. so forth. And I think that would have been an amazing sight to see. Yeah. And I wonder if the enemy knew the signals they were sending, you yeah. know, or they were sending them in code, because this could get complicated real oh, quick. Oh, yeah. Uh, U.S. Lieutenant uh, Spillard H. Horrell of the 42nd Indiana said, the 42nd Indiana moved double quick for more than a mile. Before the command took position, it was up into a line and as if on dress parade. And our order was read to the men to the effect of that under no conditions would a soldier be allowed under penalty to assist a comrade off the battlefield who was uh, wounded. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, reading of that kind does not always act to as a nerve tonic. Yeah, made him nervous that so he he could not. In other words, if you were in battle and your guy beside you got shot, you had to leave him lay and keep going. Mm. They did not want you carrying him back to the thing. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna end it right there, Brian. Our next podcast, we're gonna get into some eyewitness of actually the battle and try to find some interesting perspectives and stories from there. And uh, I hope our listeners had patience with me doing all this reading, but I've enjoyed it, and I hope they have. I have too. I mean, this is. you know, it kind of puts a face on it, hearing first count of what happened, you know, first-person account. So it was really good. So that's all for this episode of Uncommon History. We hope you enjoyed our journey through the past. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and social media to keep up with our latest episodes. All of our links are at the top of our show notes in the episode description. 
Uncommon History is created, produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolfer.